Good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Paul Gilbert, the lead pastor. So glad that you are here. Thanks to everyone who came out for our first installment of Reboot 2.0. If you weren't there, you need to know we had, we had a few bumps. Um, the struggle was real, but we overcame. Had a little mix-up on the pizza order. And so as the masses filed through the door, who were both hungry and then angry and finally hangry, we had to get the fried chicken brigade kicked up. And so they brought in the reinforcements, but this week we're just begging you for another chance. Our chefs have wanted to tell, wanted me to tell you that to ensure that there is no future culinary crisis, we are overcompensating. And so we've already shopped, we've already stacked up, we're, we're, we're assembling all the goods in the kitchen area. And, and here's a direct quote from our chefs. They say, we'll be serving a full hot dog bar with famous Nathan's uncured 100% beef franks. Come and make yourself a Frito dog, a Reuben dog, a New York dog, a Chicago dog, or make your own creation. They will be all in hot dogs. No, there, let me read it again. There will be all the hot dogs and toppings that you get it. All you want, all you can eat. So there you go. If you don't know, now you know. So subject matter, uh, we were in here talking about recapturing the wonder Mike Cosper's book, Rhythms, Disciplines for Our Spiritual Lives. How do we stay connected to, to God and each other to be fruitful in service and mission amidst all the craziness of life? Um, if you didn't, if you weren't there this first week, no sweat, um, easy to jump on board. Um, a lot of the stuff we talked about was foundational and conceptual and theoretical, um, why it's hard for us to slow down, why, why our rhythms can, how they can really shape us. But this week we're going to go to ground. We're going to be super duper practical. We're going to look at sort of the, the private disciplines, the personal disciplines that God gives us to sort of order our lives. So we'll be talking about prayer and the word and solitude and fasting. And then next week, the following week, the last week of Reboot, we'll be talking about our public rhythms. How do we do this as a family? How do we do this as a, as a church body? So love to have you guys back out 530 this Wednesday. But for today, we're opening our Bibles to John chapter 14 so you can head that direction. Trouble has arrived in John chapter 14 for the disciples in a pretty significant way. The exact opposite of what they thought was going to be happening is happening. For them, this last night of Jesus's life was supposed to be inauguration. It was supposed to be a celebration. It was an opportunity for them to take their rightful places in the kingdom of God besides Jesus as a part of his cabinet. This is when Jesus was going to reign. He was going to set up his throne. Remember, 72 hours before, rode in triumphantly with thousands shouting Hosanna to the, to the son of David. This was the chance to put down the Romans, to overthrow the corrupt religious culture there. And so they were, they were in high mode anticipation for this last night of Jesus's life. But as we've seen over these past few weeks, Jesus says, it's not going to end the way that you think it's going to end. Instead of earthly victory and earthly reign, there's going to be betrayal. One of you is going to betray me. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to die. I'm leaving. I'm going away. Um, you were, you were going to feel abandoned and scattered. Um, some of you are even going to deny even knowing me. And as Jesus is sort of dropping this bomb on them this last night, they are, as we've seen, crushed and devastated 
and discouraged and low. You know, I was thinking as I was preparing for this sermon, oftentimes when trouble hits us or trouble hits those that we know and love and care for, we always just don't know what to say. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm one of Job's counselors. I'm either saying nothing or saying all of the wrong things. But Four Oaks, you need to know something. We need to know something. If, if trouble has invaded our lives this season, if you've come in here with a weight or a burden, or even if you haven't, we know trouble will invade our lives at some point, Jesus knows exactly what to say to you and to me in our day of trouble. Three promises we've looked at thus far that Jesus has given for troubled folks, for troubled souls. We've looked at these, the promise of a place, the promise of his presence, the promise of his power. But we get to this fourth and final promise this morning, the promise of the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit. And we need to understand that this is the best promise of all. In fact, it's the most crucial promise because it's the one that activates, enables, put in motion all of the other promises. In fact, it's, it's not going too far to say without this particular promise, none of the other promises are even possible. But here's what I, I want to offer to you as a, just a big-time encouragement as we're diving into this text, and it is for me. Last week, we left off by looking at the way that Jesus asked them to pray in their time of trouble, and that's important. But this fourth promise is so good. Because Jesus says, in this promise, you're not praying to me, but I am praying for you. And folks, if you know him by by faith this morning, you need to know that Jesus is praying for you as well. You may have gone to bed last night with trouble wrapped around your heart and discouragement and low, and you've woken up with it kind of wrapped around you like a cloud, like a blanket, but you need to know Jesus did not sleep last night. Jesus was up interceding for you, praying for you. And we want to like just dig deep into that and just let that truth marinate over us this morning. I think, I think, I hope and pray you will find it super encouraging as I have. I'm going to invite you to stand if you can. If not, you can remain seated, but we're going to read God's Word, these 10 verses, John 14, verses 15 through 24, and Jesus is speaking. So listen to the Word of God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, 
said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word to understand about this helper, this paraclete, this comforter, Lord Jesus, we're asking for his help. We're asking for your help to understand what this means what its impact is for our souls and for our lives. What, what, what an amazingly precious promise this is. Lord, I want to pray specifically for, for those here this morning who are experiencing trouble with a capital T. I don't know what, what that might be. A relationship, um, a financial situation, a, a personal burden, a besetting sin. Lord, whatever it is. Father, I pray you'd bring your hope and your comfort that can only happen through the Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we start unpacking this text and jumping into the deep end of the theological pool, I want to say something sort of on the big picture side of things, the meta-level side of things related to the Holy Spirit and those things we're going to be talking about over these next several weeks. What we have here, beginning in verse 15, is a whole section that John is going to unpack for the weeks to come that, without understatement or without overstatement, is the bedrock of all Christian theology. And it's here that John gives us, and just even in one simple verse like verse 15, he gives us the foundation of all Christian theology, the doctrine of the Trinity. This idea that God exists as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. That God is in fact three distinct persons, but yet so close in union, so close in community, so close in relationship, that these three persons comprise one being. That there is in fact an amazing unity about the Godhead, while at the same time an amazing diversity. So we will have a lot to say about the Holy Spirit in the coming weeks. We're not going to try to say it all this morning. So just hold on to those emails and challenging me to the debate on pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Spirit. Just hold tight on those. Wait a few weeks before you send those. Now, I suggest that a helpful way to approach this will be to think about what it's like to go visit something like the Grand Canyon, which is magnificent and awe-inspiring and glorious. But, as mag- but the things that make it magnificent, awe-inspiring, and glorious are the very same things which urge us caution to not get too close to the ledge. I don't know if you heard this news story recently, but it was somewhere out in the Northwest where these sorts of things happen. But there, apparently there is this bridge that goes over a river or lake or something that's that's 60 feet high, and if you want to know how high that is, that's, that's higher even than the tallest point in this building. If you go outside and you look at our steeple, and you may say, Pastor Paul, I didn't know we had a steeple. It's called an architectural feature, okay, is what it's called. It's about that high. And so 
people, kids, you've got to be under 25 to be this, this crazy. Anyway, they we would get up and they would, they would get ready to jump off this 60 feet into the water. But as so happens, we know this happens, as, as, the, as the students were going up there, one, the 16-year-old kind of got to the edge and just said, no, thank you, I'm going to head down the other direction, okay? I think I'll walk down. I don't think I will, I will jump. So all of her friends were cajoling her, hey, go, jump, jump, you can do it, you can do it, until, until one, of, one of her friends decided what she needed was a not-so-gentle push off the 60-foot bridge. Now... Before I, don't worry, she, she's alive. She survived, but not before doing the 60-foot belly flop right on her face, breaking her, breaking ribs, puncturing a lung. Incredibly, incredibly fortunate, blessed to, to be here. But clearly not much thought and care and attention was given to such a magnificent sort of feat. And the same thing I think happens when we start talking about the Holy Spirit. It is an awesome reality that requires very thoughtful care and attention because it's so easily, this discussion, mishandled. And, and I think there's one of, one of two errors all of us are going to tend fall, to fall off the horse on one way or the other. On one hand, we know there's folks in here who've been profoundly hurt by misteaching, wrong teaching, or misapplication of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You've been told that if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not filled with the Spirit. Or maybe, you, or maybe you've been told you have, to, you have to receive a second blessing as evidenced by these particular things. Or you might be a Christian, but you're not going to be a super-duper spiritual Christian. And of those two, I think I'd rather be a super-duper spiritual Christian. But, but nonetheless, you've, you've incurred a lot of misapplication, a lot of pressure, a lot of guilt. It's... it's it's been a tough journey for you. And so you're naturally like kind of, you know, standoffish under discussion like this. On the other hand, and this might be where even more of us fall, we can be so suspicious, we can spend so much time talking about what we don't mean by the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we can spend all of our time sort of neglecting the rightful study of him, that we do him a great dishonor. That, that, that instead of spending our time figuring out who he is not, we spend very little time on understanding what God's word says about who he is. And I think we quench the spirit. I think we dishonor the spirit when we do that. Which is why these texts are super duper crucial and important. And while they may raise certain questions today, I'm hopeful over the course of these next six weeks that we'll be able to, to address them. But we want the Word of God to be true. We want it to speak to us directly. We want to be obedient to it. And that's my prayer. So, so two points that we're going to start on today from, lifted from this passage, and they're very simple, but I think they'll be, they'll be helpful. Number one, who exactly is this helper that Jesus is talking about? Who, who, who is he? And secondly, what does this helper do? So that, that's our two categories. So, so who is he? Not just his identity, but, but his, his, his makeup, his function, his relationship to the Godhead. And then what does he do in your life and in my life? So that's where we're going. All right, who is the helper? Look at verse 16. 
Jesus reveals the identity of this helper right off and says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And then here in verse 17, even the spirit of truth, clearly referring to the Holy Spirit as we will see more and more clearly as we wind our way through these passages. Now, the word that John uses for helper is paraclete. Okay, be careful, not parakeet, paraclete. It's an unusual word in the Greek. It only happens here in John's gospel. It's made up of two words, basically to help and then one who comes alongside of, okay, para. Someone who comes alongside to help us in time of need. Now, commentators, interestingly enough, they rarely agree about anything, but they all agree, seem to agree about this, that there is no singular English word that is adequate to capture the idea behind this one Greek word. So depending upon your translation, maybe you're using the NIV or the King Jimmy or the elect standard version or whatever, whatever you're going to use, okay, there is, some of you caught that, there, 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 there's a variety of interpretations that you might find for this word paraclete. Some are helper. There's counselor, advocate, comforter, companion. John Calvin calls, calls him the patron, which I personally like. Now, interesting about all those things, they all have aspects of the truth about who and what the paraclete is. But if you wanted to give a super-duper rigid sort of thing that you can't go around saying, we just say, we say comforter or helper instead, it literally means someone who offers assistance in a situation in which help is needed. When we say, well, Pastor Paul, what kinds of help? That's the point, all kinds. All kinds. Literally, the paraclete is the helping presence. And you may say, helping presence? That sounds like new agey and kind of Star Wars. Is that like Obi-Wan or Yoda or an animal spirit or a companion pet? Don't get me going on companion pets this morning. But anyway, what is this helping presence? And I think Jesus gives us a tantalizing pointer to it in verse 16. Go back there. When he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you, and what is the word there? Another helper. Hmm. Another helper. Which raises the question, well, who has been the disciple's helper to this point? Who has that been? If you say Jesus, it's the correct answer. Typically is the correct answer, okay? Jesus. What did Jesus do for them? I mean, you, I mean, you name it. He led, taught, healed, prayed, exhorted, protected, encouraged. Sometimes he literally fed them, did he not? So when he says another helper, another helper, there, there's two words that kind of could go there in the Greek to mean other or another. One means, comes from the word hetero, heterosexual, just simply means different, okay? A, he's going to send you a different helper. He's going to send a helper that's, that's not like me, someone who's, someone who's going to help, but not necessarily in the ways that I've been helping you or in the form I've been helping you. That's one way he could have said that. But that's not the word that Jesus uses. does not use the word hetero, uses the word Allah, meaning of the same kind, like the first. In other words, 
I'm sending you a helper, Jesus says, another helper of the same kind as me. Or, if you will, just like I would help. Just like me. It's interesting that we often see the Holy Spirit referred to as the Spirit of whom? Jesus. See, that's significant because sometimes the Holy Spirit, we can make the mistake and we can sort of be sort of, sort of Christian deists when it comes to this. The Holy Spirit is, is kind of like a, a messenger. The Holy Spirit is kind of like a substitute teacher, but, but not quite as good as the real thing. The Holy Spirit is just kind of with us in this day and age until we get to heaven and see Jesus face to face. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. In college, I had a friend um, I met on a mission project who went to the University of Georgia in Athens. And he would always tell me about the amazing music scene that was happening there. And sometimes what would happen is that very famous bands from Athens, they would come back into town and they would go incognito and, and show up in a bar and play under another name, but they were really some famous band, you know, the B-52s or the 10,000 Maniacs, or these are all 80s bands, just stay with me, people. But, but the word on the street came that REM was coming back into town, and they were playing some little dive, and, and the word was on the street. And everybody was crowding into that, that bar. They were, they were waiting for the curtains to go up in anticipation, and the curtains came up, and it was a band called, and this will mean something for some of you 80s warriors, but called Love Tractor. And you can imagine, okay, who hardly anybody outside of Athens had ever heard of, but it was kind of like, we're, we're here for REM, and this is going to be a controversial statement, maybe the best rock and roll band of all time, but I know that, I know that will generate controversy. But sometimes that's the attitude we are tempted to have. The Holy Spirit, that's, that's kind of like an it, a life force, second rate the warm-up band, the hand-me-downs. Jesus says, untrue. It's, it's my spirit. It's God himself. Look at verse 17. It says, you know him. Now, this is how close Jesus interfaces his identity with that of the Holy Spirit. Just keep that in mind. This is where we see that they're one being, but, but two distinct persons. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world receives, because you neither sees him nor knows him. Now listen, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. See, there is this, I mean, I, it, 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 it's a mind-blowing sort, sort of reality that Jesus says, I was with you, or I am with you on earth. I'm living with you. I'm dwelling with you. But I'm leaving, and I'm still going to be dwelling with you. I'm going to, in fact, keep on dwelling through the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is literally the Spirit of Christ. That's why Jesus himself, and when we get to this in John 16, he even says, it's better for you if I go away. Now, isn't that a strange thing? I mean, could there be anything better than like having Jesus recline at table with you? Jesus says, but it's, it's better that I go away. Why? I want you to put your thinking caps on here with me for a second. 
as long as Jesus remained on the earth, remember, while he was God, he was man. And so Jesus in his earthly ministry could be at one place and at one time. He was always with the disciples when he was physically with them. But he says, I've got to leave. The Holy Spirit has to come. So not only am I with you physically, I am actually in you. I am dwelling in you bodily. So we're not confined to access Jesus at one place, at one time, in one particular situation. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Do you realize the Holy Spirit goes, the, Jesus goes with you wherever you go? See, Jesus is not merely the God-man to be accessed historically, theologically. 2,000 years ago, we, we understand a set of facts about him or affirmations or catechisms or creeds. Jesus says, no, 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 no. All that is great. All that's good. All that's, all that's vitally important. But you need to understand that when I leave me, access to you in one place, in one time, in one circumstance, I have to leave. It's better so that I can be everywhere all the time in my people. So Jesus, hey, great if Jesus shows up. They'd have to shut this place down. But it wouldn't help the world. See, Jesus' spirit has to change hearts. And Jesus says, when I come, I have to go because I'm going to send my spirit. Folks, as you think about the trouble that's within you or upon you today, remember, Jesus is there with you. Jesus is walking with you. Jesus, and by the way, is not your co-pilot, okay? He's not your co-pilot. He's in you, dwelling in you, empowering you, encouraging you. And Jesus says, it has to be this way because I want to give you the full extent of myself. That's why I look at verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Now that word orphans clearly can mean, does mean not having parents. But it also means much more than that. Not only does it mean not having parents, but to be orphaned meant to, to be abandoned, to be without care or support or supervision or the things that you most desperately need to live and survive. See, during trouble, it is so easy for us to feel misplaced, that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that we are isolated, that that we are alone, that we are, let's be honest, we feel cut off. It's so easily, it's so easy to feel orphaned, just like the disciples were feeling. And Jesus says, it's not so. It's not so. I'm coming back to live in you because there are some works of grace I want to do in your heart. And I want to spend the rest of our time here looking at two of those works. Now, there's many, many, but here are two that are pointed out in this particular passage, and this is under the, the second category of what does the helper do? And there's two things. The first thing I want to mention is that he changes you. He changes you. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, 
he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. If I were to ask you the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? How would you respond? Is that someone who's been baptized? Is that someone who's gone through confirmation? Someone who's memorized the catechism or the creeds or the statements of faith? Or who's been born into a Christian family? Or who's gone to church their whole life? How would would you define that? What is a Christian? See, a Christian, Jesus tells us, is someone who has been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who has eternal union with Jesus Christ, and that that we are identified with him in his life and death and resurrection, that he is indwelling us. And if Jesus is indwelling us, if his spirit is alive and active in our hearts, by definition, we will be changed. Now, let's, let's unpack this a little bit, understand what John is saying, what he's not saying. First of all, these are not statements of condition or, or, or works-oriented statements. In other words, if you obey, God will give you more of his Holy Spirit. Or, um, you know, if, if, if you're good today, God might bless you with his Holy Spirit tomorrow. That's not the sense of the language here. These are meant as statements of certainty. John's saying when you're indwelt by the Spirit, it is a certainty that change will happen. Now, now understand something. Change can be painstakingly slow. Sometimes it can be two steps forward, three steps back, it feels like. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit can sin spectacularly. They can, we can make all sorts of messes in our life. But the hallmark of the Christian indwelt by the Holy Spirit is that we're not content with that. that. That there is something stirring within our hearts that says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus, I, I, need, you to, I need you to help me. I need you to work in me. I need you to change me. I'm, I'm, I don't... I don't even have the strength for repentance, but I want to want to have the strength for repentance. See, Jesus is saying, while the work of the Holy Spirit is oftentimes mysterious, and think back to John chapter 3, we, don't, we can't see the Spirit. We just see the effects of the Spirit. We see the work of the Spirit. While the work of the Spirit is often mysterious, it's it's, it's, it's unmistakable. We see the impact. And because we, we've seen this in the lives of people, you've seen it in your own life. And Susan and I got a chance to, to know some other couples, pastor couple wives this summer. And there was one particular couple, I won't share their names. But when you talk about lost, when you talk about far from God, um, this is who these, these folks were before they knew the Lord. I mean, partying and drugs and just a whole host of things that were going on in their life. And as they shared their testimony, there was one particular night where the Holy Spirit just showed up. 
Not sure if it was, it was the witness from another person or things they had been hearing along the way. But they got the overriding conviction that we are turning away from our sin and we are turning to Jesus Christ. And that there is no way to, there, there's no way, this is not a counterfeit, there's no way to camouflage this work of grace that's happening. We, are, we, have, we have been walking in darkness and now we see the light. And so God is calling us to obedience in this area, in this area, in this area. And some of you have similar testimonies. So, so I've heard some of your testimonies. There is no explanation for why you were here other than by the grace of God's Holy Spirit. I was lost, but now I'm found. That's what Jesus is describing here. Judas, everybody named Judas always does something dumb in this passage. But look at Judas in verse 22. It's actually a great question. Is Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He's not asking a question of, tell us how this is going to work, Jesus. He's asking a very profound question. He's saying, Jesus, why don't you reveal yourself to the world? You're revealing yourself to us. And by reveal yourself to the world, he means, why don't you, wouldn't it be better for you just to set up your throne? Wouldn't it be, just to be better for you to set up your kingdom? Wouldn't it be better for you just to reveal who you truly are? To which Jesus might have said, we've, we've been down that road once. We've been down that road once. I revealed myself to the people of Israel. I told the truth about them. They wanted to kill me. Guys, do you realize that if Jesus showed up in the world today, that we would find some way to kill him as well? Because our hearts are corrupt. See, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that the, only, that the Holy Spirit is the only hope for this world. See, for Jesus to be received, then the Holy Spirit must change hearts. See, for, for, for maybe, maybe the way trouble has in, invaded your life is through a prodigal relationship <clears throat> or a difficult marriage or, a, or, a, or some sort of broken interpersonal thing that's going on. Jesus reminds us the Holy Spirit is the only hope in this world because he is the only one that can change hearts. So he changes us. And folks, I would just, again, one, one little, little point of encouragement. If you find yourself discouraged today, if, if there is some besetting sin, if there's something that you're wrestling with, you're struggling with, let me just encourage you just to reflect back on the faithfulness of God. And just to think back at the ways that you've seen his work of grace in your life. I, I realize sometimes it's small. I realize sometimes it seems infinitesimal. I, I realize sometimes it just it seems so distant and abstract. But when you look at the scope of God's work and faithfulness in your life, the people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Second thing he does... He comforts us. I want you to look specifically at verse 16. There, again, there's many ways that he comforts us. I want to mention one specifically. This is one that I really have, have never really seen for what it truly is, I think. 
I'm indebted to, to, to John MacArthur's work on this passage. It's, it's really outstanding. But look at verse 16. Let me read that for us first. He comforts us. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. I want you to think about that for a second. Sometimes it's easy to think that the Holy Spirit has come and dwells us, is here until Jesus returns. And once we're with Jesus in heaven, we no longer have need for the Holy Spirit in that way because then we'll see Jesus face to face, right? That's not what the passage says. When Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, if you were indwelt with the Holy Spirit this morning, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there is, I hate to break this to you, there's never going to be a second for the rest of eternity that the Holy Spirit is not dwelling within you. There will never be a moment, even in death, where the Holy Spirit will fail to be working in your heart. Even through death, there will not be one millisecond that you are separated from him. You know, sometimes we have a misconception of heaven. It's, it's kind of like the Polar Express, if you've seen that. You, you know, the last scene where Santa's rolling in and played by the strangely animated Tom Hanks, but thousands of elves are, are, are jumping around. Everybody's trying to get a glimpse of the big man, right? Once a year, he comes out. If we could just glance at him, see him, sometimes we think heaven's going to be like that. There's going to be thousands, millions, masses. We're all part of some choir or, or on some cloud, and we're gathered around the throne, and there's Jesus. And how will Jesus be accessible to all those people anyway? Maybe we'll see him one day. Who knows? I don't think that's the way it's going to be. You see, this, this passage says that the Holy Spirit will be indwelling us forever. The way that we will commune with Christ in heaven is through his Holy Spirit. Listen to what John, uh, Revelation 2.17, also written by John, by the way, that I think just brings this out in a really unique way. John says, he, this is Jesus speaking, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, that's Jesus, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, I want you to think about that. I don't know if there's a literal white stone or an etch-a-sketch. I don't know how this all works. But Jesus seems to be saying something like, in heaven, I am going to have such a bond and a communion with you that there are, there are intimacies that we will share within that relationship that are unique and known only to you. I'll, know, I'll, I'll have a name for you. Some of you married couples have nicknames, and it's gross, okay? There'll be, not, there'll be, be nothing gross about this. This, this, is, this is something known just between the two of us. How is that possible? Through the Holy Spirit. Church, many of you have, have, have chronicled and followed along um, the fight for life, the fight for faith that, that Deborah Pacetti has been engaged in these last six years. Um, supposed to survive a, a year or two, and here we are six years later. Got the word, and some of you know this, that she's been moved to hospice care and has been moved to the hospice house probably today. And 
these are her, these are her last hours. And I just want you to know, because I've, I've visited several times with, with, with Deborah this week, she, she's not conscious now. The Lord is taking her home, and she's surrounded by family and friends, and the family appreciates your prayers. Deborah is not able to receive visitors, of course. But in these last hours, I'm happy to report that while physically she's not doing well, spiritually she couldn't be doing better. One of my last conversations with her on Thursday, she said, said, Paul, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die because I'm not afraid. And we say, humanly speaking, how can someone say that? Because we feel incredibly afraid for her, don't we? When we think about ourselves in that situation, we feel incredibly afraid for ourselves. The reason she is not afraid is because she knows she has not been orphaned. That not only is the Holy Spirit in her now, but is filling her, moving her, guiding her, directing her into eternity itself. There's never a time as a believer where we are at a distance with Jesus as it relates to his presence. There's never a time where Jesus abandons us to the grave. Jesus says, I am with you. What does he tell the disciples in Matthew 28? Always. Always. As we're thinking about this in light of the table this morning, let me ask you a question. What what did it take for us not to be orphaned? What did it take for you not to be orphaned, for me not to be orphaned spiritually? It took Jesus himself being orphaned on our behalf. It was Jesus on that cross who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you turned your back on me? God, I'm receiving all the just punishment that mankind deserves. I don't deserve it, but you're pouring it out on me. This is what had to happen so that we could know the Father and have the Spirit of Christ, not just for today, but forever. So as we come to the table this morning, we are reminding ourselves be reminded of this, Four Oaks. Our need for Jesus is one that never ends. There'll never be a second from here to the rest of eternity that you and I won't need him. And we are reminded of that when we come and take of the bread and we take of the juice and say, Jesus, you're indwelling us now. You'll be indwelling us forever. I will not let my heart be troubled.